This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will usually select with some degree of randomness. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 84th episode of The Quarter Bin, we're continuing our seasonally-based Halloween Times episodes by looking at Phantom Stranger number 1 from DC Comics, cover dated October 1987. This is the first issue of a four-issue mini, and just so you know, I don't have the rest of the series. It's just this one. But first, a little feedback on the Vision and Scarlet Witch episodes. I was glad to hear from Grant, the Grand Poobah of the Unearthly Visions blog, about our coverage of the Vision and Scarlet Witch mini. That blog is available, by the way, at unearthlyvisions.blogspot.com. A recent post featured a very interesting interview with comic book writer Fred Van Lente. Great episode, Professor. As a Vision aficionado, I was excited when I saw the promos for these episodes, and they were a great jumping-on point for me for your show. I'll definitely be playing catch-up now. I decided to listen to both episodes before commenting, so this might be somewhat long-winded. It was worth the wait for me, though, to binge-listen to both back-to-back. Though I developed a fascination with the look of the Vision from a very early age, the cover of Vision and Scarlet Witch number 1 was the first time I learned his name and a hint of what his powers were, and helped cement my love for the character. The book came out when I was in elementary school, but I didn't have the opportunity to read it until recently. Thank you, Marvel Unlimited. I admit that I stared at the image of the Vision in his civilian clothes over his costume, that collar, for several minutes, not only because it was striking, but because I was trying to wrap my brain around it. Yes, Grant, I spent a lot of time staring at that as well, trying to figure out what was he trying to do there. Grant continues, until recently, shots of the Vision out of costume were rare, and they may have been unheard of in 1982, and at first I wondered possibly if Bill Mantlo had thought that the Vision's costume was part of his body. When Wanda removed her overcoat, revealing that she had been in costume as well, for nothing more serious than an evening stroll, I got the impression that Mantlo was conveying that while Vision Wanda wanted to be accepted in suburbia, they weren't trying to blend in exactly. They wanted a normal life, but not necessarily a human life. That's a good instinct, Grant. You're very right that Mantlo was diving deep for appropriate villains in issues one and two. I had never heard of Isbisa before, and Sam Haim appears to have been created specifically for that issue. An interesting bit of trivia I discovered was that Isbisa's name is actually a Shazam-style acronym for the different technological eras of humanity. Ice, stone, bronze, iron, steam, and atomic. The bit where the Scarlet Witch tells the doctor at the nursery, my husband is just called Vision, would be reflected in Steve Englehart's 12-parter from a few years later. 
in that final issue, after Wanda names the twins William and Thomas, Wonder Man remarks that William Williams might be a challenging name for the boy. Wanda replies, it's just Billy and Tommy, and Wanda and Vish. Issue 3 is probably my favorite of the mini. The coma sequence, where the Vision sees the burning body of Jim Hammond floating in the void before becoming merged with it, is brilliant. Wonder Man's hair is killing me in the scene of him pulling the subway car, though. Oh well, it was the early 80s. Grant then quotes one of the more memorable lines from issue 4. I am Bova, midwife of Wondagore, a new woman evolved from a cow by the Lord High Evolutionary. As Rob Kelly is fond of saying, to those of us that read comics, that makes perfect sense. But to the rest of the world, it is complete gibberish. Again, two great episodes. I really admired the respect you showed to my favorite comics couple and the rest of their extended family. Well, thank you, Grant. Coming from the man who runs the Unearthly Visions blog, that is very high praise indeed. Glad to have you listening. And the irredeemable one himself, Shaggy the Florida Man, also commented on a batch of recent episodes. Getting caught up on my quarterman fix. Loved your two episodes dedicated to Vision and Scarlet Witch. While they've never been favorite characters of mine, I do love this era of Marvel. Interesting the way this miniseries was laid out. I'm actually intrigued by this and would love other stories to try this format. The one and done is a lost art, and linking it thematically was a nice bonus. I'm so over stories that never end in comic books nowadays. Also enjoyed your episode on JLX and JLX Unleashed. I read all the Amalgam books when they came out, but really have no strong memories of these issues. It was fun to hear which characters were mashed together and hear the twists and turns with continuity. Looking forward to more Dead Universe stories on future episodes. Keep up the great work, and no more of this 33 cents equals a quarter nonsense. You're an economics professor, for goodness sake. Technically speaking, Shag, I'm a finance professor. Which is way cooler than being an econ prof, just for what that's worth. On Twitter, a few days after that Vision and Scarlet Witch episode went up, the great Kansan, Greg Arujo posted a house ad from Marvel for that miniseries and also promoted these episodes. Phase 3 Brian talked about the 12-issue mini that followed up, and I reported that I had double-checked, and it was issue 5 of that series that I was missing. Greg said that he picked up that 12-parter when it hit the shelves, and he managed to miss that one as well. From there, it devolved into a conversation about marriage and Poor Darren Sutherland was roped in on that. Hopefully Ruth didn't see that part. I also heard from Iowa's Joe Crawford, who reported that he was just getting back into reading comics after taking most of the summer off. Needless to say, my backlog is backlogged. I picked up The Vision and Scarlet Witch Trade in the spring out of the bargain bin at our bookstore. I have a history with this series. I had issue number two, and my mom took it away from me, and gave it away. After 30-plus years, I will finally be able to read it. 
So I was super excited to hear that the series was going to be covered on the quarter bin. By the way, for years, I had assumed she had a problem with it having a witch in the book. Now I wonder if the splash page didn't upset her as well. And that splash page of issue two was the vision kneeling in agony, holding the bloody stump of what was left of his arm. So yeah, that may have been a bit too gruesome for young Joe's delicate sensibilities at the time. He also twittered out this when the second podcast episode came out. So, I haven't gotten around to reading the trade yet. However, I am glad I listened to the podcast anyway. The third and fourth issues sounded even better than the first two. Your synopsis will be tough to beat, though. But maybe Bill Mantlo can pull it off. Yeah, Joe, I'm not really worried about that. I'm pretty sure Mantlo can write a better script than I can write a summary of his script. Joe adds, Cheers for your march to episode 100, and I can't wait to hear the Phantom Stranger episode. Phantom Stranger episodes, plural, as it turns out, Joe. And I think it's time to get to our next one. And we'll do that right after this. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ, as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. And we're back. Phantom Stranger, number one, at a cover price of 75 cents. Meaning I acquired this book at a two-thirds discount off the manufacturer's suggested retail price. The cover, by Mike Mignola and P. Craig Russell, shows the Phantom Stranger looking at us in his iconic look of dark fedora and cloak, white turtleneck. His gold medallion is even there, and he has some sort of magical power emanating from his hands. Floating around him are newspapers with troubling headlines such as Plague, War, Riot, Flood, Famine. It sets the tone in a lot of ways. It's ominous. It's moody. It's the Phantom Stranger. The story, The Heart of a Stranger, was written by Paul Kupperberg, with art by Mike Mignola and P. Craig Russell. We start somewhere in limbo, maybe? A white-haired dude wearing nothing but a gold medallion doesn't know where he's been, or where he is. Before now, I have accepted whatever fate did befall my physical being, and I had faith in my lords and their power. Such has been the cycle, being and non-being. 
life and death. What does it mean to me? In Gotham City, Commissioner James Gordon is at a crime scene. Eleven mobsters are dead. Lined up against a wall, Lieutenant Stiles tells him, Well, an Uzi at close range makes a real mess, sir. Gordon's been on the go for three straight days now, and each crime I see is more horrific than the last. There's definitely something in the air. The Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, makes it clear that the world itself is falling apart. There's been a huge earthquake in Romania, the third such quake to hit in the last two weeks. Although American-Soviet tensions are making it really hard to get information about the quake zone. The grim news is taken in by Gotham University's Dr. Bruce Gordon, who is undergoing some type of psychological torment. He leaves his apartment, walks out into the night, considering, Lord, it will never end, will it? And down in the corner of that page, a silhouetted stranger in a fedora is watching. A subtle darkness has gripped the world. Across the globe, disasters occur with increasing frequency. Mount St. Helens erupts, a nuclear facility melts down. Dams break. Tensions increase in the Middle East. And fistfights break out on the floor of the United Nations, shutting down the organization. Finally, the UN is getting something right. Kind of a shame they started back up again. Anyway, meanwhile in Metropolis, a young bow-tied reporter named James B. Olson is on the trail of a story. Why is a crummy mob clerk the first dude to make bail after a huge sweep of the mob's operations? And why is that same fella heading for the Soviet consulate? I wonder if anyone younger than me has ever won the Pulitzer Prize. But reporters and police commissioners and professors aren't the only ones who've noticed the signs of the times. The leader of the Temple of Divine Light has also noticed, and he is getting his preach on. The bearded man tells his flock that they need to repent, but they know that the lords are just clearing the way for the glorious tomorrow. It seems that they have been chosen to be guides through the pathways of eternity. Outside the church, the stranger monologues about men seeking hope in any form when all seems hopeless. He will set morality aside in the name of survival. He will ally himself with the devil in the name of salvation. The phantom stranger steps into the church, declaring that their leader's words are emanating evil, and that he is there to save them. He reveals the leader of the church to be Lycion, chosen of chaos. Your vile lords of darkness have warned you of my coming. They debate about dark and light and who represents which and which is stronger and all that. At one point, he even tries to convince the stranger to join his following. But that idea doesn't work so well. And then with a bamf, an actual bamf, a big, fat, ugly demon appears. By all that is holy, you stray far from the pit of hell that spawned you. The stranger battles the demon, one of the lords of darkness, trying to stop him from devouring their innocent souls. But the demon is a deceiver. To their adoring eyes, he says, referring to the congregation, I am a golden angel, spouting soothing words from their maker. And you, phantom stranger, you are an evil that needs to be destroyed. The demon does a pretty good job of getting the best of the stranger, but their supernatural fight is interrupted by very natural means. 
Commissioner Gordon and the GCPD arrive on the scene and Gordon sums up the situation pretty well. What the devil's going on here? Followed quickly by, My lord, it's horrible. What sort of insanity have we stumbled into? The demon answers the commissioner's question, which, to be fair, is pretty polite. I am the future of this miserable world, he explains. Be humbled that you are the first to die by mine hand. But the commissioner is not ready to die, at least not today. While the phantom stranger pleads with him to save himself, Gordon opens fire on the demon. That's right. He takes his ordinary service weapon and unloads it into an actual demon. And somehow this works. Lysion recoils in pain and disappears. And like everyone reading this issue, the phantom stranger is totally confusolated by this turn of events. As he tends to do, the phantom stranger then disappears before the hard questions are asked. Alone on a nearby rooftop, he tries to make sense of what happened in the church. How could Gordon's efforts succeed when his failed? How could the stranger's offer of self-sacrifice be disregarded? Is it because he cannot truly die, and therefore his sacrifice would be meaningless? We then move to New Jersey, to Newark in particular, which always means trouble. We learn, again from the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, that poisonous pesticides have been released into the atmosphere, requiring mass evacuations of Newark and nearby cities. And at a bar, Bruce Gordon listens to the news, drowning his sorrows and mumbling about not being able to sleep. We then move briefly to the recently referenced Soviet consulate, a blonde woman wrapped in bandages, a.k.a. Colonel Vostok, a.k.a. Negative Woman, a.k.a. Member of the Doom Patrol, is trying to discover the whereabouts of an undercover agent. Maverick, his cover's been blown by someone, and her response? Enough. Let him die. We then move again to another scene, to a dungeon somewhere where a man is imprisoned, bound by his wrists, awaiting execution. The phantom stranger arrives here, and the man in charge of this dank lair is revealed to be Eclipso, master of evil. He is so confident in his declaration that he speaks it in his own font. Now that's impressive. Eclipso tells the stranger that after trying to use the power of science in his evil doings, he has now turned to magic. It was there all along, and I never knew it until now. He figures that magic can take him to the heart of darkness. I cannot live in the light, you know that. He reveals that he sent the demon, and if the stranger couldn't defeat that being, what hope does he have against Eclipso and his plan to cover the world with darkness? It's madness, the stranger says, to which Eclipso replies, the end has already been written, and you are fated to lose. The stranger seems to accept this, if it is indeed his fate. But before departing dramatically, because he is the phantom stranger, he leaves Eclipso with this zinger. You will know the wrath of a stranger, and you will know fear as well. Then, nearing the end of the issue, we moved to later that night, and we moved to Star Labs. Dr. Janet Clyburn 
has deduced that all the craziness that has been happening in this issue cannot be natural. It must be some outside force. But her colleagues think she's been working too hard, and they mansplain that there must be something else happening, that it would take a massive power source and machinery to do all this damage. They don't say that she should just go home and not worry her pretty little head about it, but that's sort of what they're doing. And finally, in the last half page of the issue, we get the final scene. Dr. Bruce Gordon has been kicked out of that bar he was in earlier, landing on his hands and knees in front of the Phantom Stranger. I have heard your cry. I wish to help if I may. He tells Dr. Gordon that if the Earth is to survive beyond the coming handful of dawns, Eclipso must be stopped. And it must be stopped first within Dr. Gordon's own soul. To be continued. So, as my podcasting buddy and fellow traveler, Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think of this? Wow, a lot happened in these 22 pages. I gotta give Kupperberg credit for that. I literally actually went back and counted the pages just to make sure this wasn't an exercised issue. But nope, this was just 22 packed, packed, packed pages. We have several storylines, many of which seem disconnected here in issue one, but obviously they'll come together in later issues. Part of the mystery is trying to figure out the how of that. How is the Jimmy Olsen scene with the low-end mob guy in Metropolis related to this whole thing? How involved will Star Labs be in working on a solution? And how does any of that tie into Negative Woman and a missing Soviet spy? A ton of stuff happened in this issue. A ton of stuff. In order to get this much stuff in, they do a slightly non-standard thing of switching scenes in the middle of a page. That does happen, but more often than not, a scene change happens at the top of the comic page. But more than once, they shifted scenes in the middle of a page, which I think gives the series a kineticism, a velocity, a sense that you're always jumping forward, jumping forward, jumping forward. Except that you aren't always jumping. That scene with the demon fight in the dead center of the book is nine pages long. So you have a lot of these short scenes for the first six or seven pages, bouncing back and forth. Then this really long fight scene. And then you end with a lot of short scenes again over the last six or seven pages. It gives the story a nice sense of pacing. The fight scene, the action sequence, is actually the part of the story where you can take a bit of a breather. Because it's the only time you're in one place for an extended page count. That's something you don't consciously notice unless you're reviewing a book. But I think you intuitively notice, your, your subconscious notices that. And it's very interesting storytelling. I think that having all these diverging plot lines can work in a Phantom Stranger story. It plays into his strengths as a character, or at least his unique aspects, and that's that he's generally not the lead of his stories, at least in terms of being the star of the action or the character that has a character arc where he changes over the course of the story. There's not a lot of change for the stranger. But he works in a setting like this with multiple characters, multiple things going on. 
He's not bound by time and space. So he can visit characters in different settings like he does here. A sprawling worldwide story like this seems to be the type of story that fits into what his character can do. So this has definitely gotten off to a good start. It's asked interesting questions and laid out some tantalizing potential. I have said more than once that I'm generally not an art guy when it comes to comics. Or maybe a better way of saying that is that I don't have an eye for differentiating most comic book artists one from another. There's a broad sense that it all looks alike to me. Or better said, that it has to be very distinctive for me to notice. There are a handful of artists that fit this category. Artists like Alex Ross, obviously. Jack Kirby. Mike Grell, or something like Cliff Chang's take on Wonder Woman. But among that short lists of artists whose work I specifically like are both Mike Mignola and P. Craig Russell. Mignola's specialty is the horror stuff, obviously, with Hellboy as his magnum opus. And P. Craig Russell has done some beautiful work in magical settings, in fantasy settings including the award-winning Sandman 50, the Ramadan issue. Russell's been nominated for seven Eisners, if I counted right, and has won four. So these two artists are terrific choices for this story. The moody stuff, the night on the streets, the shadows, all of that works. The demon they fight is clearly a Mignola-style monster. And the details in the church scene, including the design of the church and its iconography seems very P. Craig Russell. There are designs that are almost crosses, not quite, but with a starburst and an alpha and omega and the pyramidal all-seeing eye. So it's a mix of conspiracy theory, paranoia imagery with religious or semi-religious imagery. Beautiful detail. Even the more mundane scenes, the everyday scenes, the scenes in the bar or star labs, have exquisitely designed and detailed elements. One page in particular that struck me is page five, where we have a series of five panels that are showing weather disasters around the globe. And again, the detail in each panel is impressive. But what makes the page work is that at the center of it, where the corners of four of those panels meet, is an overlaid circular panel. That is just an extreme close-up of the stranger. We've got him from the nose up, his hat, and these glowing white eyes. Just captures so much of what makes the title character work. It gives the impression that he is witnessing all of these global events. Not just that they're happening, but that he is seeing it all, maybe experiencing it all. And then the issue wraps up with a two-page text piece from Kupperberg talking about his history with the Phantom Stranger as a fan and how this miniseries developed. I was always a sucker for those DC publishorials that Jeanette Kahn wrote regularly in this general area. I guess Dick Giordano did a number of them as well. Was that his Meanwhile column, perhaps? So for me, that that glimpse behind the scenes was always enjoyable, always interesting. I'm a sucker for DVD extras, so I guess those were the uh, comic book equivalents. Bullpen bulletins were fine over at Marvel, 
but they were way more self-promotional, or at least overtly self-promotional, shamelessly self-promotional, than the stuff I preferred. Obviously, these text pieces in DC books, whether from top management or, like here, the writer of the book, always seem to have some interesting information about the process, about the background, behind-the-scenes stuff. In addition to serving a promotional function as well, of course. But these ones seem to have a purpose in addition to promotion, which stands didn't always. The verdict on Phantom Stranger number one. I have found it difficult at times to judge one part, especially part one, of a multi-part story because of the lack of context of not having the whole story. But as my friend and podcasting colleague Paul Spataro pointed out, the first issue of a limited series can be judged by one simple question. Does it make you want to read number two? And in this case, the answer is an overwhelming affirmative. It's hard to recommend just the first issue of a limited series, but if you see this one for a quarter, pick it up. I mean, if you find all four of them, pick them up and let me know how the story goes from here. But yes, Phantom Stranger number one, a quarter bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of Phantom Stranger number one, bringing episode 84 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close and bringing Halloween Times 2016 to a close. In episode 85, we're probably going independent with a look at Mars number one from First Comics, cover dated January 1984. Or... We'll be covering DC Retroactive Wonder Woman 1970s from DC, cover dated September 2011. It depends on when our next Shortbox Showcase comes out, because we're going to be talking about Wonder Woman on that episode for her 75th publish-aversary. The plan is to follow that Shortbox Showcase with the Wonder Woman retroactive here on the quarter bin. So we have those two Wonder Woman episodes back-to-back in the feed. So the two books I mentioned will be the next two episodes, 85 and 86. Those are the next two issues we'll cover. But the order is not totally set. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, The Phantom Stranger, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcast's Uncovering the Bronze Age, and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.